Hello, my lovely. Hello, hello. This is Lori and Tori coming to you from the haunted corners of New England. And you're listening to the Something Wicked podcast, the show that delves deep into the topics of true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal, dedicated to the people that love to know all the spoopy and gruesome details about serial killers, haunted houses, and creepy cryptids with tales to make you sleep with the lights on. We are back into the fray with serial killers. Dun, dun, dun. This one is fascinating. We are going to be talking about Ed Kemper, also known as the co-ed killer. This six foot nine, 300 pound monster either had a twisted ass Oedipus complex or was just a giant version of your friendly neighborhood neckbeard creeper. He ended up killing 10 people before he got locked up and honestly, I have to say he is also one of the most cunning and true sociopaths that I have ever come across. So sit back, pop some corn, and enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the show and for those of you new to the podcast I'll say thanks for tuning in. As we said in the intro we are covering a very interesting subject today, Ed Kemper. He is kind of one of those in my opinion B-lister serial killers. So one that you may have heard about but not as popular as Bundy for instance. Ed falls into the category of killers that people don't cover often, mostly because of the facts of the case are too much for people to handle. You know, the kind of dark and twisted shit we cover on this show. So of course he's going to be talked about on here. Most of the episode comes from Eddie's own words. He loves to talk and it's kind of all over the place. Oh, fun. <laughs> I wanted to cover him because he's always been a subject of interest to me in the sense that he was one of the first people that was given the label serial killer way back when the FBI were just creating the term. He, in fact, had helped the FBI create the beginning profiles and signs to look out for that lovely trifecta that show up in the early stages of a child's life to tell if they're a psychopath or or not. I don't know if any of you have ever watched the Netflix series Mindhunter. If you haven't, definitely check it out. If you have, you'll probably remember Ed and his real life was very accurate to what was depicted in the show. And here we go. Kemper the third was born <laughs> was born on December eighteenth, nineteen forty eight, at eleven oh four PM at the St. Joseph Hospital in Burbank, California, to parents Clarnell and Ed Kemper Jr. Excuse me, did that <laughs> Clarnell? Clarnell. That's his mother's what? name. I know, it's so his, fucking weird. His mother's name. Yeah. What a fucking name. <laughs> They were 27 and 29 at the time, and Eddie was a big boy. He was 13 pounds oh, when he was born. No, fuck that. Mind you, he came from a giant family. His father was 6'8", and his mother was 6 feet, but still, holy shit, no thank you. No, 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 no. It's like trying to push out a fucking watermelon. Like, beyond that, it's- oh god. <sighs> 
There were no complications with the pregnancy or labor, but Clarnell did have to have an episiotomy and repair, which is an opening of the vagina a bit wider by a cut in the area between the vagina and anus to allow the baby to come out more easily. (gasps) So yeah, he literally split her open. Oh my god. (laughs) Ed Kemper Jr., his father, was a World War II vet who, after the war, tested nuclear weapons at the Pacific Proving Grounds before returning to California, where he worked as an electrician. Clarnell often complained about her husband's menial electrician job. Wow. Ed Jr. later stated that suicide missions in wartime and the atomic bomb testings were nothing compared to living with Clarnell. Holy shit. (laughs) And that she affected him, quote, more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front did. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Sounds like she a bitch. Mm Mm-hmm. Eddie's first ever fantasy was pretty normal and straightforward, unlike the other ones that developed later in life. He said his first fantasy was that his mother and father would be loving together and caring for their children. According to Eddie, it was a fantasy that never came true. Instead, there was much violence, hatred, yelling, and screaming between his father and mother, who separated and were divorced when he was around seven years old. Eddie said he felt rejected and unloved by his mother and his father as well though he indicated he yearned for a good relationship with his father. He spoke of his mother as alcoholic and said she had once beaten him with a heavy belt buckle when he was a small child and told him not to scream because the neighbors will think I'm beating you. What the fuck? Well, no shit. This was at the age of nine, and Eddie said that after he was afraid of her and began to have a recurring fantasy about sneaking up on her and hitting her in the head with a hammer. I don't blame him. Mm Mm-hmm. Clarnell was a real piece of work. She was a raging alcoholic that was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and would constantly berate Eddie and his father. His sisters never seemed to get any of this rage apparently, just just them. Wow. Like the dad and yeah. The family at the time of Eddie's birth were living at 6706 and a half Camellia Avenue. What? <laughs> yeah. There's there's half addresses. <laughs> In North Hollywood, California, apparently. He was the second of three children and was the couple's only son. By age four, he was already a head taller than the rest of his peers. Early on, he exhibited antisocial behaviors such as torture of insects and cruelty to animals. Ah. At age seven, he would sneak out of his house at night with his father's bayonet and spy on his second grade teacher through her window. When his older sister teased him about wanting to kiss his teacher, he responded back with, if I kiss her, I would have to kill her first. So he was already thinking about killing people at seven years old. He said that he would fantasize about killing his teacher and having sex with her corpse. He stated, quote, I knew long before I started killing that I was going to be killing god this, uh-huh. this kid this guy oh even more bizarre because i don't know how much <laughs> other than that Fucking crazy you're gonna get some of his favorite childhood games were gas chamber and electric chair where he would make his older sister take him to the basement put a bag over his head tie him up and flip an imaginary switch so that he could writhe in agony on the ground until he died from electric shock or poison what the actual fuck I mean, at least he was the subject of it. That's still fucking weird as <laughs> this shit. This kid but... was all sorts of messed up. At least he wasn't forcing his sister to do that. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. He kind of, like, was trying to convince her to do it. Like, she was just like, mm, that doesn't sound right. He's like, no, 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 it'll totally be fun. Like, so weird. Fuck? 
Eddie had this really dark fantasy life where he performed rites on his younger sister's dolls that culminated in his removing their heads and hands. He also had close-to-death experiences as a child, once when his elder sister tried to push him in front of a train, and another time when she successfully pushed him into the deep end of a swimming pool where he almost drowned. She was trying to take his ass out before it got too bad. Uh Uh-huh. I don't blame her either. (laughs) By eight, his mother decided he needed to be secluded to the basement. And by that, I mean there was a trap door that led to the small crawl space of a basement they had under the dining room table that she would lock and cover with the table every night so he couldn't leave until someone unlocked it in the morning. And in this room was only a furnace, a cot-like bed, and a single light bulb that hung from the center of the room. She did this because she was obsessed with the idea that Eddie would leave his room at night to go molest his sisters. I mean, that wouldn't be my first concern with him, but whoa. (laughs) It was here that Eddie said he allowed his hatred for women to fester and grow. He said that he'd stare into the flames of the furnace for hours and later told the FBI profilers this is where he saw the devil's face for the first time. Whoa. whoa. Yeah. This went on for another eight months before his father had had enough of his wife and just left when Eddie was nine. Personally, I wonder how he might have turned out if his father had taken him with him. I really wish he had. I mean, Ed seemed kind of tapped, but I think maybe he could have had some things under control if he had been raised by his father instead. I mean, first of all, in that situation, obviously she hates both her son and the father. Mm -hmm. So, like, why not take the kid with you? But he didn't seem to care much for Ed anyway. No, not really, no. I feel like he still would have been neglected. Yeah, Ed saw himself as having a close relationship with his father and was notably devastated when his parents separated in 1957 and divorced in 1961, causing him to be raised by Clarnell and Helena Montana. He had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mother, a neurotic, domineering alcoholic who frequently belittled, humiliated, and abused him, and regularly mocked him for his large size, he said six feet four inches by the age of 15. Oh my god. Yeah, and derided him as a real weirdo in a phone conversation to Ed's father, unaware that her son had been eavesdropping. She also refused to show him affection out of fear that she would turn him gay. What? Yeah. And told the young Eddie that he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. Jesus Christ. Eddie later described her as a sick, angry woman. Little tidbit, after his father left, Eddie became obsessed with John Wayne. Like, rural obsessed. He would watch all the movies, impersonate him all the time, just idolize the man. This does play a role later on during the crimes, mind you, as to why it went on so long without him getting caught. I know, weird reason, but bear with me. Shortly after this, at age of 10, he killed a family cat by burying it alive because he believed the cat had switched its attention from him to his younger sister. He killed it to, quote, make it mine. What? After it died, he dug it back up, decapitated it, and piked its head on a stick in his room. What the fuck? Kemper later stated that he derived pleasure from successfully lying to his family about killing the cat. How do you successfully lie about killing the cat when you put its head on a goddamn pike? Did nobody see that? I mean, if they don't go into his crawl space room ever. Oh, God. How are they going to see? Or, I mean, the smell alone, but still. Like, he's right under the kitchen. Yeah. In the fall of 1963, Eddie, now 14 years old, was allowed to go to Los Angeles to the home which his father, Ed Jr., shared with his new wife, Elfried Weber, and her son from a previous marriage, Gilbert Otto Brechfield, who was two years older than Eddie. 
The second Mrs. Kemper quickly began to feel extremely ill at ease with her dour and hulking stepson, now more than six feet tall, hanging around the house and staring at her until she became upset. <laughs> <laughs> she began to get migraine headaches. Once the boy happened to catch a glimpse of her nude in the bedroom, later Eddie recalled that he had felt sexually excited by this episode, and still later it would be reinterpreted, perhaps at his instigation, but at least by the journalists, as a sexual overture on the woman's part. The woman had appeared naked before him, using her sexuality to take his father away from him. What? <laughs> what the fuck? No, he was just a fucking creeper. Yeah. Eddie was in Los Angeles for only a few weeks when, at his stepmother's urging, his father sent him back to Montana to live with his mother and sisters. Ed Jr. told his son that he was financially unable to keep him. A few months later, around Thanksgiving, Eddie ran away from home in Montana and returned to Los Angeles to see his father. Another incident that Eddie had following his pregnant stepmother around the house, shutting all the drapes and blinds, claiming it was too bright. Afraid, she opened them up again and told Eddie he needed to leave. Her son Gilbert happened to arrive at home at the moment. He saw how scared his mother was and how creepy Eddie was acting. Then he grabbed a hammer and chased him away. <laughs> He's like, get the fuck out of my house! <laughs> he had enough of his shit. Leave my mama alone. <laughs> After he was sent back home in retaliation, he killed another family cat. This time, cutting off the top of its head with a machete exposing its brain then he dismembered it and kept the pieces in his closet until his mother found them <laughs> yet she didn't find the fucking piked head nope fun fact a criminal psychologist stated at one point that the reason serial killers that target women kill cats at a very young age because the cats are a more feminine animal so it's symbolic and especially in eddie's case they are selective with their attention uh. i can tell you that is very true <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I have two cats and my female cat is attached to me and my male cat is very much a daddy's boy and can't stand me. I'm chopped liver apparently. <laughs> so I get it. Shortly after the second cat incident, Eddie was sent to live with his paternal grandparents, Maud and Ed Sr. on a ranch in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada on Road 224. Clarnell made a phone call to her ex-husband in disagreement and told him not to be surprised if he woke up one day and his parents were dead. Oh, God. <laughs> After Eddie had settled in, he was given a twenty-two cal. He learned quickly how to use that along with knives when he spent some time in the Boy Scouts. Yeah, because that's a smart fucking thing to do with that kid. I mean, they're trying to get him socialized. I get that. But, but like, no. <laughs> not a great way to do that. But when his grandparents found out that he was using the gun to continue to kill domesticated animals and pets, it got taken away. Shocker. However, because they lived on a ranch, there was still quite a handful of guns left in the house. One favorite of Eddie's was his grandmother's forty-five that she kept in her dresser and would frequently catch him playing with. Oh god. It got to the point that she had to take the forty-five with her wherever she went, and Eddie would watch her leave with her purse just packed. He would ask why it was like that, and she'd be like, oh, I'm just going to the store. After he left, he would go look for the gun and be shocked when it was missing. So he was like, hmm, I guess grandma doesn't trust me. I wonder why. <laughs> I mean, the way he described his grandparents in the first place shows how little regard he had for them. He said his grandpa was senile and his grandma was constantly emasculating him and his grandpa. So I don't know. 
know. Maybe she didn't think he could handle a big gun like fucking Annie Oakley over here. <laughs> Listen up, Pilgrim. A big mouth don't make a big man. And if you won't leave me with them critters, I'll just saddle up with bigger game. The <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck? Oh my god. In August of 1963, he decided it was time to take Grandma out. Oh no. <laughs> His grandpa was out running errands at the time. He f had finished an argument with her at the kitchen table and left the room in a fury. He went to her dresser, grabbed the forty-five, and came back to the kitchen. Maud was sitting at the table in the middle of writing a children's book. <laughs> And he splattered her brains all over the pages. Oh my god. He fired two more shots into her back and then grabbed a knife and stabbed her three times. Because that's not over-fucking-killing. <laughs> when his grandfather had returned, Eddie met him in the driveway and shot him. Eddie later said that he had killed his grandpa outside because he wanted to spare him the sight of his dead wife. He told the interviewer this for their benefit because that would be the compassionate thing to say. He did very well with hiding his sociopathy on a personal level. Everyone usually saw him as a nice, easygoing guy, but underneath, he was just a monster. That changed his story frequently, depending on who he was talking to at the time. Wow. In several of his interviews, in fact, there was no pause before an answer, no thinking, no remorse, just nothing. When he committed his first double murder, he said the same thing, that he wanted to spare the pretty blonde girl from seeing her best friend getting murdered when he separated them. But when he was asked why he killed his grandmother, he said, quote, I wanted to see what it was like to shoot grandma. <laughs> this was one of the major reasons I label him as a true sociopath. No emotion, just all facade. However, in another interview, he stated that he killed his grandmother because she reminded him of his mother. So again, the context of the story, depending on who he was talking to. Yeah. When Eddie was arrested in August 1964 after murdering his grandparents, his mother, Clarnell, and his older sister, Susan, were interviewed by doctors and social workers from the Atascadero State Hospital where he was imprisoned for the next five years. Clarnell said she, Eddie's older sister, Susan, was always responsible for and protective of Guy, which was his childhood nickname, while I worked, sometimes protected him from my discipline of misguided love. Bullshit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he and Sue were close until she began to mature, and then Alan, my 14-year-old daughter, who he had a close relationship, however his needs were building and hers were normal and gregarious and outgoing, and she had friends he resented. Susan stated, as far back as I can remember, Guy has always wanted to be himself. He has seemed to be happier when there was only family. He never seemed to be too interested in participating in activities with other children. We seemed fairly close at times, but if something didn't go Guy's way, he would get awfully mad. Not as if he were spoiled and throwing a tantrum, but mad at everyone. All kinds of things would bother him, like the way my kids would cry or when my little girl would be drooling or spitting, I would never hear the end of it from Guy. Sounds of constant coughing or crying or heavy breathing would really upset him. Jesus Christ. So it sounded kind of like he had misophonia. Yeah. Or just like every sound pisses you off. Eddie ended up getting diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic at age 15 by the court when he was apprehended for the murders and sent to Atascadero State Hospital, a maximum security facility in San Luis Obispo County, California, that houses mentally ill convicts. The following is a transcript of a staff summary written by Mercedes Tilston, a social worker at Atascadero State Hospital in October 1964, a few months after Eddie was arrested for killing Edmund Sr. and Maude Kemper, his paternal grandparents. The staff diagnosed him as a schizophrenic paranoid. 
This youth, Kemper, has committed a double murder, that of his paternal grandparents. For several years prior to the killing, there were numerous indications that this youth was extremely disturbed, had self-destructive impulses, and acted out homicidal impulses against two cats over a period of a year. He is overwhelmed with feelings of worthlessness, guilt, parental rejection, and has great fears that he will suffer a psychotic episode. Kemper has thought long and hard about suicide and has attempted it repeatedly over a number of years. Upon admission at NKCC, he was in particularly unstable state and gave the impression of being on the verge of committing suicide. As a result, a suicide watch was posted. At present, he is stabilized to some small extent. He is on tranquilizers. In spite of the tranquilizers, though, Kemper continues to be extremely agitated, anxious, distraught, and preoccupied. He has a tremendous need to talk about himself, has done this with a psychologist and a social worker, and to some extent with a psychiatrist. He should be encouraged to channel all his talk about himself to his therapist. Kemper is fearful that peers might learn of his commitment offense. In this respect, he is in very good touch with reality. He is sensitive and very much aware of the unacceptable nature of the killings. Studying the record in all of Kemper's verbalizations reveals that there were suggestions that he would act out violently. It is a tragedy that attention was not paid to these suggestions and that he was not placed in treatment and helped to avert this terrible tragedy of killing both paternal grandparents. Staffs in accord that this youth could be best treated in a mental hospital at this time and perhaps with some preparation and at a later date be prepared for a placement in a treatment program in a youth authority institution. Medical report, physically fit for full activity, diagnosis, schizophrenia, paranoid, placement recommendation, Department of Mental Hygiene. So they stated even in this, they diagnosed him as paranoid schizophrenic, but he is fully aware of the reality, fully aware of the repercussions of what he did was wrong. That is not a schizophrenic. No. But this is back in the 60s where if you were even a little off, they're like, you're just a schizo and just moved on and threw you in a nut house. Like, that's how they dealt with shit back then, unfortunately. That's fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. California Youth Authority, psychiatrists and social workers strongly objected to the initial diagnosis. They were like, no, he's not a paranoid schizophrenic. He's a sociopath. I think they were on to something. (laughs) They said he showed, quote, no flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expressions of delusions or hallucinations, no evidence of bizarre thinking. I'm going to call bullshit on the last one, but the other statements, yeah, I can agree. Yeah, I I think that's uh, pretty fucking accurate. (laughs) Yeah. They also observed him to be intelligent and introspective, initial testing measuring his IQ at 136 over two standard deviations above average. Eddie was re-diagnosed with a less severe condition, a personality trait disturbance passive-aggressive type. Later on in his time at a Tascadero, he was given another IQ test, which gave him a higher result of 145. I feel like he just wasn't trying for the first one. No, I think it's just <laughs> they, they saw him as paranoid schizophrenic, so they didn't really take certain things into account when they were testing him. True. So when they finally re-diagnosed him, they were like, okay, maybe he is that smart. Yeah. <laughs> but still, like, the first initial one was two points above average, so the second one is just like, yeah, he's... Yeah. <laughs> gonna kind of go off on a little offshoot from the main topic, but one that ties into all this 
1965, in Santa Cruz, California, University of California opened up an adjacent campus. It was a retirement and tourist community at the time, but within seven years of the university expanding, Santa Cruz became what was known as the murder capital of the world. God, what? <laughs> That's the one thing I hate about Santa Cruz. All the damn vampires. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> the Lost Boys is a gem, and I well, can't please. not... <laughs> <laughs> the real reason it was given the title of murder capital was because from 1970 to 1973, there were a spate of murders. John Frazier, an extremist in the hippie lifestyle, killed a household of five in a la Manson family style, meaning he killed them all in one go, not to stop what he viewed to be the spread of progress to the natural environment. What the fuck? Herbert Mullen killed 13 Santa Cruz residents, claiming it was to prevent a super earthquake that would inevitably shift all of California into the ocean. Whoa, what the fuck was in the water? <laughs> and Eddie was killing all the co-eds, so fun times. Jesus Christ. <laughs> These three killers eventually helped end the hippie movement to usher in the violence of the 70s. Even though the women that Eddie killed weren't really hippies, they were more to his taste, demure, petite, and pretty, etc. Back to the nut house. Eddie endeared himself to his psychiatrist by being a model prisoner, and he was trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. Excuse me, what? A psychiatrist later said he was a very good worker, and this is not typical of a sociopath. He really took pride in his work. What the actual fuck? Eddie also became a member of the JCs, which is the United States Junior Chamber, also known as the JCs or JCI USA. It is a leadership training service organization and civic organization for people between the ages of 18 and 40. It's a branch of Junior Chamber International. Areas of emphasis are business development, management skills, individual training, community service, and international connections. He was a part of this while in Atascadero and claimed to have developed some new tests and some new skills on the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, specifically on an overt hostility scale. During his work with the Tescadero patients, after his second arrest, Eddie said that being able to understand how these tests functioned allowed him to manipulate his psychiatrist, admitting that he learned a lot from the sex offenders to whom he administered the tests. The reason he was able to weasel his way into the good graces of the psychologist is because at the time, Atascadero had 1,600 patients. Dozens of them were murderers, over 800 were rapists, and there was a psychiatry staff of 10. What? So being, That's illegal. Yeah. So being a model prisoner earns you a bestie in power, I guess. Literally half of them were rapists. Mm-hmm. While working for the psychologist, he had access to hundreds of case studies that went into grisly details oh about God. crimes, rape, etc. He figured out through evidence and psychology tests, methods, and how these people were caught. And the most important bit of info he found is that you don't leave any witnesses when you rape someone and you don't leave any physical evidence at the crime scene. You dumb shits. Mm. Just giving him access to all of this stuff. Like, why? Why? Oh, because he's normal. He's no, perfectly fine. he's a fucking sociopath murderer, <laughs> and you already know this fact. <laughs> Later in Atascadero, Eddie's fantasies turned to sex as well as murder. He said his final fantasy was, quote, I killed someone, cut them up, and ate them, <gasps> and I kept the head on a shelf, and I talked to it. I said the same things I would have said had she been alive, in love with me, had she been caring of me. 
See, that's yeah. that seems like the schizophrenic part right there. If just anything, just a little bit. Anything that would be the diagnosis. Asked by an interviewer Ugh. if he ever told anyone at a Tascadero about the fantasies, Eddie replied, "No, I would never go out if I had told the psychiatrist I was having fantasies of sex with dead bodies and then some cases eating them. I would have never gotten out ever. No, no shit. You wouldn't have. They probably would have put you in a fucking locked, padded room. Yeah. So after five years of playing the system so well." that he was able to convince the psychologist that he was doing well enough to be released on December 18th, Ugh. 1969, his 21st birthday, he was released on parole from Atascadero. Against the recommendations of the psychiatrist at the hospital, he was released into the care of his mother, Clarnell. Stop! <laughs> who had remarried, taken the surname Strandberg, and then divorced again. <laughs> That doesn't surprise me. In Aptos, California, a short drive from where she worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz, or UCSC. Ed later demonstrated further to his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated, and on November 29th, 1972, his juvie records were permanently expunged. You don't. The last report from his probation psychiatrist read, If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult, to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. Okay, so we've covered a lot of fucking people, and I have not felt as stressed out as I do with this guy and their fucking doctors. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm so mad about this. In UCSC, Clarnell was extremely popular and very helpful with her job on campus. Everybody loved her. At home, it was a different story. She was now divorced for the third time. This is where he gets it from. Yeah. She's also a sociopath. Yeah, so the Strandberg, mind you, that was her third husband. There's no info on her second one, but it does state that she was married three times. <laughs> yeah. And she blamed Eddie for all of them. What, he wasn't even there for the second She one. said, quote, because of you, my murderous son, I haven't had sex with a man in five years. First of all, it's not something <laughs> you say to your child. Second oh. of all, he wasn't <laughs> even there. He was locked up. Uh -huh. While staying with his mother, Eddie attended community college in accordance with his parole requirements and had hoped to become a police officer. Oh, no. Though he was rejected because of his size. Oh, God. That would have been fucking a terrifying prospect, having him as a, a cop. Yeah. Oh, my God. I am so glad that failed for yeah, him. But they were just like, no, no, you're you're too fucking tall, dude. Like, you can't come in here. They were like, no, because everybody's going to see you and immediately be intimidated. Like, yeah. <laughs> At the time of his release from Atascadero, Eddie stood six feet, nine inches tall. God damn. Which led to his nickname, Big Ed. Eddie maintained a relationship with Santa Cruz police officers despite his rejection from joining the force and became a self-described friendly nuisance at a bar called the Jury Room, a popular hangout for local cops. This is where the John Wayne thing comes into play. Oh my god. He would befriend the cops by doing his impressions, making them laugh, and give off the impression that he was just this big, lovable idiot who wouldn't harm a fly. He was seen as a cop groupie, and one of the officers even gave him an ID card so that he could pretend. Stop! 
But jokes on them because later on when he started the killings, Eddie would go to the jury room and cops would frequently discuss the aspects of the case with him, tell him what traps they were setting and what methods they were using to try and catch him. But the info from the cops also made him super paranoid, thinking they were onto him when they had nothing. Oh my god. So motherfucker just walked into the bar and was like, so what's going on with this co-ed killer? And they're like, oh, so you see, this is what we're doing. So they're just literally giving him all the info so he can learn how to avoid them. My brain hurts. Uh. Why? <laughs> Eddie worked a series of menial jobs before gaining employment with the state of California Division of Highways. During this time, his relationship with Clarnell remained toxic and hostile, <gasps> the two having frequent arguments that their neighbors often overheard. Eddie later described the arguments he had with his mother around this time, stating the following. My mother and I started right on horrendous battles, just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fists with a man, but this was my mother and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over stupid things. I remember one roof razor was over whether I should have my teeth cleaned. When he had saved enough money, Eddie moved out to live with a friend in Almeida. There, he still complained of being unable to get away from his mother because she regularly phoned him and paid him surprise visits, so she just wouldn't leave him the fuck alone. She hated him. Why would she keep bothering? I don't know. Just making herself fucking miserable. He often had financial difficulties, which resulted in his frequently returning to his mother's oh, apartment God. in Aptos. At a Santa Cruz beach, Eddie met a student from the Turlock High School to whom he became engaged in March 1973. Oh, the engagement was broken off after his second arrest, and his fiancée's parents requested her name not to be revealed to the public. Okay, well, at least there's yeah. that. She yeah. got the fuck out of there. To one of his drinking companions, Eddie confined that he'd become engaged and he commented that a man would be a fool to marry a woman smarter than himself. Kemper did not marry the girl. In fact, she was seldom seen in the area and little was known of her except that she came from a Central Valley town, was small, blonde, young, and immature. Later, he told an investigator that he worshipped her in an almost religious way and that they had never engaged in a sexual relationship. Oh, thank God. Yeah, really. Thank God she got out of that. Seriously. Ugh. In fact, he claimed that he had normal sex only once, and this was with a woman who rejected him when he approached her a second time. But he also said on other occasions that he had never had normal relations with a woman, and again, that he had frequently attempted intercourse with a woman, but he had never reached a climax. The same year that he began working for the highway division, Eddie was hit by a car while riding a motorcycle that he had recently purchased. His arm was badly injured in the crash, and he received a $15,000, which is equivalent of $101,635 today, wow. mind you, settlement in the civil suit he filed against the car's driver. As he was driving around in the yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy he bought with part of his settlement money, he noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking and began storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and handcuffs in his car. Oh my god. He then began picking up young women and peacefully letting them go. According to Eddie, he picked up around 150 such hitchhikers before he felt homicidal sexual urges, which he called his little zapples. <laughs> <laughs> and he began acting on them excuse me the fuck did you just say to me <laughs> his little zapples little zapples yeah 
I can't even. What the oh, God. Fuck. <laughs> While he was in the phase of picking up people peacefully, it was at first anyone, male or female, before it became only women. He had conversations with women to see what they wanted out of a man who gives them rides to get them comfortable with him. Oh, then he would start to have the sexual fantasies. He had a system, a persona that he developed (laughs) over the next few years. He labeled it as his gentle giant type. He said women would open the door, look at him, and think, quote, oh, he's just a big old dork. Oh my god. (laughs) The behavior started to escalate with thinking about groping the women. Then he would practice techniques to trap them in the car with him. His car was a coupe, so it only had two doors. So what he would do is, when he had a passenger say, I think your door is open, he would palm a chapstick and reach over to drop the chapstick behind the handle so they couldn't open the door. And he would do dry runs of this over and over to practice for when he did pick someone up. Ugh. So he already knew what the fuck he was doing before they even got in the car. Eventually, he started carrying a gun under the seat along with the plastic bags, knives, blanket, and handcuffs that he kept in the trunk. He would review his passengers. Some he saw as friendly, others haughty. So basically, he either viewed women as innocent or sluts. No gray area whatsoever. Jesus fuck. He had begged his mother to introduce him to the girls on campus because he felt he wasn't able to hold a decent conversation with them, fumbling over words, being too shy to actually hit on them successfully. But of course, his mom said no because the girls were too good for him. (laughs) But but she did get him a big-ass campus sticker with an A on it, which gave him an all-access pass to every part of the campus unrestricted. That's dumb. Why would you do that? She of all people knows what he's capable of. Uh After he got the sticker and having hours to days of practice, his two personalities finally came into the light. Eddie had always perceived himself as being split. On one side, he was the nice guy and the inner monologue of the monster. He thought he was viewing women who don't immediately engage in the nice guy personality as the bitches that his mom won't let him meet. And in turn, all he wanted to do was rape them. So as I stated before, your friendly neighborhood neckbeard creeper. Yup. Oh, I want the, I'm a nice guy. Why don't girls ever like nice guys? Oh, you're such a bitch because you didn't answer me within 2.5 seconds. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Fuck. On May 7th, 1972, he picked up two college girls, Marianne Pesky and Anita Luchessa. They were hitchhiking on a freeway ramp, and Ed's first impression of Marianne was haughty. Stuck up, not beautiful, not ugly, and distant. Marianne, in turn, had red flags fly up all over the place, mostly due to the car being a coupe. Not exactly super easy to get in and out of if you were to sit in the back. I mean, being blocked in the backseat by Eddie, the not-so-friendly giant, isn't my idea of a good time, so I don't blame her. Yeah, no. But Anita, who was new to hitchhiking, convinced her to get in, because of course, he's just a big old dork, what's he gonna do, right? Oh my god. The girls were heading to Stamford, and Eddie knew the way very well due to his time in the highway department, so he started driving them around without them knowing that he had changed directions. And naturally, he was not going to Stamford, but to a remote location. Of course. He went over in his mind as they were driving how he would practice with the twenty-two. He would keep the gun next to him, underneath his legs, sitting in the car by himself, pulling it out over and over so he wouldn't mess up when he presented the real opportunity. Now he had his chance. When they arrived at the remote location, he pulled out the twenty-two and handcuffed Marianne into the back seat. Personally, if I had red flags shooting out like she did, even if my friend was some fucking Jedi, like, you want to get into the creeper's car. 
I still wouldn't get in the fucking back seat. <laughs> but that's besides the point. Yeah, no, really. So he handcuffs her. Then he tells her, as stated later to an interviewer, I'm running the show here. There's absolutely no contact with improper areas. In fact, I think, and this bothers me, I think I brushed one of her breasts with the back of my hand. It touched it and it embarrassed me. And he just went, whoops, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, because that's going to make it all better. The girl's already terrified. You've done the one thing she was afraid of so far, but whoops, you touched a booby. Oh my god. (laughs) After that little mishap, he takes Anita out of the car and locks her in the trunk, then goes back to Mary Ann. This was the instance I was talking about earlier where he said he didn't want the pretty blonde girl seeing her best friend die. He thought he was showing sympathy or whatever sociopaths do to mask it anyway. He throws a plastic bag over her head because he said that he had this nifty idea about suffocating. (laughs) Then he wraps a bathrobe belt around her neck. The belt snaps and she bites through the bag. In a later interview about biting through the bag, he says, I pulled a knife out. I still had the gun in my pants. I stabbed her. She didn't fall dead. You're supposed to fall dead. You're supposed to go, ugh, and fall dead. (laughs) I've seen it in all the movies, right? Didn't work that way. When you stab someone, they leak to death. They lose blood pressure and you stab them more and more and more. You complicate it many times where you're hitting, the pain causing, and the aggravation of the person involved. Plus, whether or not they leak a little faster. What the fuck? (laughs) He was literally basing this shit off of movies he's seen? Uh Uh-huh. Apparently people leak to death. (laughs) My brain hurts. It wasn't working worth a damn. I stabbed her all over the back and she even turned around and I stabbed her in the side and the stomach like once. Why? As she turned around, I could have stabbed her through her heart, but her breasts were there. <laughs> and it actually deflected me. I couldn't see stabbing a young woman in her breast. That's embarrassing. Oh my fucking God. I didn't say it to them back then. I think I may have. That's humiliating to admit that. That I was that affected by her presence. I stabbed her in the belly and that had to hurt worse. I didn't do it to make it hurt. I was trying to shut her up and she had ended up getting her throat cut and uh i learned the term ear to ear with that because that's the way it went this is oh god see First of he, all, never, he, started with that. he never blames himself for any of this like the just the statement she ended up getting her throat cut yeah was basically going well it's her fucking fault like no yeah no no accountability <sighs> The fucked up thing with the way that went down is that he stabbed her because he forgot he had the gun. What the fucking fuck? So after he kills Marianne, he opens the trunk and Anita asks, what happened to my friend? And he lies and says, I broke her nose because she didn't do what I wanted. So you need to come help her. Like, (laughs) fuck. So Anita gets up and Eddie reaches into the trunk and brings out this knife called the original Buffalo Skinner that he named the General. (laughs) Which he very proudly stated was expensive at a whopping $9. I mean, it's the 70s, I guess. So that was expensive back then, maybe? I'm surprised it wasn't named for his penis. (laughs) The General. The General. Jesus fuck. So he uses the general to stab her in the throat, (laughs) eyes, heart, avoiding her tits and her forearm. He was surprised how many stab wounds it took before she lost consciousness. He said she was wearing really thick overalls and that the knife wouldn't properly go in, that it bounced her. Like, he stabs her, right? And she gets yeeted almost onto the car roof. Like, he literally hit her with so much force, it threw her body onto the roof of the car by stabbing her. 
Oh my god. Then he loads both bodies into the trunk and heads towards home. On the way back, he's stopped by a cop for a broken taillight. He knows how to talk to cops, though, and said he was excited the whole time. If the officer had done a routine check and made him pop his trunk, he said he would have shot him in the back of the head. Oh, funny thing I forgot to mention after he killed them. He said that after he put their bodies into the trunk the first time, he panicked because he couldn't find his keys and he ran. But the gun fell down his pant leg of his jeans, so he tripped over it. <laughs> <laughs> then he calmed down, went back, and found his keys in the back seat of the car. <laughs> he was like, oh shit, shit, can't find my keys! And then just like fucking fumbles. Oh my god. Trips on the gun. Here's my question. <laughs> if he stabbed them both so many goddamn times, oh. you'd imagine that his back seat of his car, or at least the inside of his car, would probably be covered in blood. If right? not him. Yeah. So like I, I that's that was running through my so mind too because it's like him over. did he not see that he's just like saturated in blood? It's like I don't know what what what's going on there, Eddie? Oh nothing, just built some fruit punch. <laughs> like the fuck? Seriously, <laughs> I can't I cannot fathom what the fuck is happening here. <laughs> this stupid Jedi mind trick bullshit. <laughs> So he gets home, carries the bodies up to the apartment. His roommate is out, mind you, because that would have been a hell of a so. thing. Because otherwise, that would be fun to explain. I could just imagine it like the scene from iCarly for some reason when she catches Spencer with the emu. Oh like, what she got there? A smoothie. <laughs> like, uh. After he gets them in, he dissects them, takes pictures as he's cutting them up, cuts the heads off, and then uses his new homemade fleshlights. Ew. Bundles of fun! <laughs> he said with the girl, there's a lot left with the girl's body without the head. Of course, the personality is gone. I remember there was actually a sexual thrill. You hear that little pop and pull their heads off and pull their heads up in the air, ripping their heads off the body, just sitting there. That'd get me off. Like, ugh, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> fuck is wrong with you well it literally just made me gag he keeps their heads for a little while he said that on occasion he would just sit there staring at the head rested on the chair across from him the head became unsettled sometimes it rolled off the chair hit the ground with a huge thud and eddie said quote the neighbor downstairs hates my guts i'm always making noise late at night he gets my broom and whacks on the ceiling and i said buddy i'm sorry about that i dropped my head so he actually told the downstairs neighbor that the head fell to the floor and the neighbor was just like, shut up, you're being too damn loud. <laughs> like, I mean, are you really going to take anybody seriously if they say that to you? I don't know, but I oh my god. I'd be like, you dropped your head, eh? Yeah. Probably like a fucking mannequin head or something. After he's done with the bodies, he puts the remains in plastic bags and buries them in the Santa Cruz hills, torso and limbs in one location, hands in a second, and he disguises the burial grounds with techniques he learned from the Boy Scouts. This is why I said that was not a good idea. No. The heads he keeps for a few more days to humiliate the corpses, as he calls it, and after having more sex with the heads, he throws them into a ravine. The girls were reported missing, but people were just so transient then. Hitchhiking was huge at the time, so when the girls went missing, when it was reported, the police did nothing. They didn't find Marianne's head until nine days later, and Anita's remains are yet to be found to this day. Funny thing, 
Eddie's fascination for beheading sparked from a young age. He later said in an interview, When I was young, I was about eight or nine years old. I went to this little come on. It was like a record store or something. And they had this crowd of kids there. And there was a magic show. And this guy, you've probably seen it. The fake guillotine, hand press, and they put the potato there. And someone puts their neck in the brace. And they slam this thing down. And the potato down below chops in two. But the person's head doesn't fall off, right? And everybody gets very fascinated by that. Oh my god. I'm out standing in this crowd watching this show and he wanted to volunteer out of the audience and some quite beautiful little 16 year old girl gets up there and this big laugh and they're all giddy and stuff and I started getting caught up in this. I said wow right at that moment. I departed reality because logically I should have been able to ascertain that that could not happen. You're not going to get away with chopping somebody's head off in the middle of Helena, Montana but the concept of it was so raw and it was titillating. I says Wow, gee, gotta watch this. And he had her girlfriend come over and put her hands there to catch her head so it wouldn't fall in the basket, you know. He was making jokes about this. I got caught up with this interplay between normal concerns. You don't want to get a bump on her head. Well, hey, if you're chopping her head off, it doesn't matter, right? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. And this catching in my mind somehow, and I'm saying, wow, and naturally let out a shriek, and they're all excited. Oh, wow, as he chops and the potato falls and her head doesn't go anyplace, he unlocks the brace and she gets out laughing, and he gives her some little prize for coming up participating in the experiment. That's the first time I'd ever seen a show like that, you know? You see things like that on TV, it's one thing, but to be there and watch things like that, you get more caught up in it, and I went from there. That became another piece. That's the whole event of my life that I can align to the fascination was the fact that she was a very alluring young lady. Like, this whole thing he got from it is because she was an attractive girl, and he just pictured chopping her head off in the middle of the fucking store. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the murder! Now, his style that he was using was well set. It usually takes months to years for someone to have a set M.O., but he had rehearsed so often, it was almost as if he already knew what he wanted to do. He characterized his killings as making dolls out of people, kind of like when he was a kid doing the creepy shit with his sister's dolls, but they couldn't reject him. After he cut off their heads, there was no more rejection. You think? No shit. (laughs) Although he later recanted and said that this statement was only meant for his insanity defense, on at least two occasions he cannibalized his victims, slicing flesh from their legs and cooking them into a macaroni casserole. (laughs) Cause that seems like the most Midwestern backwoods thing to do. Oh, you got some chunky thighs there. They might just, you know, go really well at Aunt Patty's tater tot hot dish. Mmm, long pig casserole. That's good eating right there. No. (laughs) (laughs) needless to say he was not a cannibalistic killer it seems to be kind of a pattern with some of the most deranged killers though to dabble in cannibalism kind of like our girl leonarda i mean she did it because she was kind of feeding her victims to the other people too but still the point being is she didn't do it because she thought they were super yummy no no she did it because you know i'm already making these into tea cakes i wonder how this is gonna turn out (laughs) not so bad why do your tea cakes taste like pennies leonardo (laughs) no reason just eat it (laughs) the spirits will protect you (laughs) they just weren't fatty enough that's why you still taste the tinny taste oh my god I want to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. 
Your support would help the show grow so much, so I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G-W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If Something Wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today. It's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds. Click the link in the show notes, pay with Apple or Google Pay, and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use. You can listen anywhere at any time. Happy listening! victims also were chosen randomly on the spot he didn't stalk them or learn about their lives shit like that no he was just like oh there's a pretty girl i'd really love to take her home and fuck start her head oh god this violence and deranged fantasies he usually had was the result in fights with his mother he said his rage is what drove him he would go on these stints where he was like anyone that got in my car was gonna die that night when (sighs) someone put their hand on my car door handle they were giving me their life oh my god the shit this dude says is just ah after killing the first two girls he fell back into the learning to talk to girls phase where he would just pick them up and take them safely to their destination when they got into his car the first thing they would bring up was the murder of the hitchhiking girls (laughs) and he would ask them what they thought the killer would be like and they would tell him their opinions and in turn he would base his persona depending on the description they gave him he said that if they brought up the killer at all, they would be safe because he would then be too embarrassed to kill them. Oh my god. He kept this up for four more months until September 14th, 1972. His next victim was 15-year-old Aiko Ku, a ballet dancer. She was hitching a ride to her ballet class in San Francisco. She had missed her bus and made a sign that said San Francisco on it, so she was just like chilling on the side of the highway with it. So he picks her up and he doesn't even wait until they get to a secluded area. He pulls out his gun while they're still driving on the road and he tells her that he wants to kill himself, but he wants someone to watch him do it. But if she screams or signals to anyone passing that she's in danger, he'll kill her too. Whoa. After he drives to this remote place, at one point he gets out of the car and locks himself out with the gun still in the car with the girl. And she lets him back in. What? I know she's a kid, and she's probably scared to death already, but girl, the gun's right there. The keys are in the car. Fucking drive away at the very least. No! Bitch unlocks the door and is like, come on back in here. What the fuck? I can't even. I can't. What? Then he gets back in, and he drives them up to the mountains, only minutes from the house of one of the case investigators. (sighs) (laughs) He tries to suffocate her by putting his fingers up her nostrils like he's digging for fucking gold, but she fights him off. Then he resorts to strangling her with her own scarf. After she's dead, he lies her on the ground, rapes her, and he says that he achieved orgasm within seconds. First off, first off, regardless of what your mother says, dude, I'm telling you right now, Clarnell ain't the only reason you can't stick a date. Yeah, no. Fuck a minute, man. Ugh, God. Like, a few seconds? No thanks. I'm good. 
after he's done with her, he places the body in the trunk and heads home. On his way home, he stops for a beer, he goes in, knocks back a few, and then goes back to the parking lot. I'm sorry, with her still in the trunk. Mm-hmm. Opens the trunk to, quote, admire my catch like a fisherman in the middle of the parking lot. Besides this quote showing how distant he really is from the world, he is in full view of people. It's hard to believe that no one saw anything, and it gets even ballsier later on. The worst part about but it I is digress. He's, he's being so nonchalant that yeah. it's not raising suspicion. Yeah. Oh my god. He takes the body home, cuts off the head and hands, and has sex with the torso. The next morning, he buries the body in one location, the hands in another, and with her head in the bag, drives to his court-mandated therapy session to see two different psychiatrists. With her head in the car. <sighs> As per those meetings, this is where he got his juvie records expunged in November 1972, as stated toward the beginning of the episode. They actually used the words normal and safe <laughs> when they were talking about Eddie. My guy. This dude got a 15-year-old's head in his trunk while he's putting on his smiley face for you. Yeah, he rolls safe. They wanted him to be able to have a normal life. So eight years after killing his grandparents, Eddie has complete and total freedom. Oh my god, what fuck nuts. He brings the head back oh. home, and on his way through the building, this fucker is thinking, quote, to be walking up the stairs with a camera bag that belonged to a young woman that had her severed head in it, walking up to my apartment, passing a happy young couple coming down the stairs, who nodded and smiled at me as they went by. Good evening. <laughs> They're going out on a date. When I'd love to be going. And I'm aware of both these realities and the distance between those two are so dramatic, so amazing, so violent that it really, I could feel the wheels squeaking inside. It was really pulling on it. And I imagine at that point, some people break, but I didn't literally go insane. I didn't get lost. Oh, what? Do you want a fucking good noodle sticker for not going ape shit on the couple in the hall? He was all puffed up and proud when he said it too, you fucking mook. Oh my God. <laughs> Like, he was, he's like, but I didn't go nuts. Like, what the fuck, dude? No, you already had your fun. After he killed Aiko, he ran into some financial problems, so he had to move back in with the mama. Oh, Bad move. But he didn't kill again until he bought his twenty-two pistol in January 1973, and he said, I went bananas after I bought that twenty-two. Why the bananas? Fuck? <laughs> Why the fuck did they give this asshole a gun in the first place? Oh, you'll find out. Even before his record was expunged. Yeah. No. What? You'll find out. <laughs> the same day he bought the gun on January 8th, he picks up Cynthia Shawl, who made a habit of hitching rides to Calibro College in Aptos, California. He brings out the gun again while driving and drives her to a town called Freedom. What? Oh my god. I smell irony. He stops on a quiet road and shoots her, dumps her body in the trunk, and takes her home. She's a bigger girl, so Eddie has trouble carrying her up the stairs. His mother gets home just as he's stuffing her body into his closet. Oh my god. I can see that. Eddie! Eddie, what's all that racket? What are you being so damn new is he for? I'm cleaning my room. Told you not to disturb me while I'm cleaning my room, Mom. But no. <laughs> he stuffs her in there and goes back downstairs to have a normal conversation with her. Stop! <laughs> At this point in the investigation, because of his methods, the police have zero idea who the killer is. But his paranoia and brass balls just keep getting bigger as this goes on. <laughs> That's gotta be a fun combination. 
I'm curious how that would work exactly to have an ego the size of your own giant ass mixed with the insecurity that you're going to get caught any fucking second. Yeah. The next day, he takes the body out of the closet, has sex with it, and then dismembers it in the bathtub with an axe. Oh god, that must have been a very long process. <laughs> yeah. After all the blood was drained, he bags up- <laughs> After all the blood was drained, he bags up all the carved pieces and yeets them off a cliff. He has sex with the head for several days before burying it in the yard, right outside of his bedroom window, facing the house. He said he had sort of a boyfriend-girlfriend type of relationship with the image of her head. He would sit in his bed and talk to her at night. There's another theory, though, that he buried his head to mock his mother because he said his mother said she always wanted people to look up to her. Oh, I like that one better. You salty bitch. I love it. Pull out that pretty princess crown and work. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. What the fuck? Oh, that was not up. You get snaps for that one. Sorry. That was salty as fuck. I love it. <laughs> Uh, both of these stories, of course, came from him because, again, depends on who he's talking to. He was extremely good at reading people to gauge what they wanted to hear. Less than two days after the disposal, dismembered arms and legs were found on a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. He was able to get the torso in the water, but got winded, I guess, when he tried the arms and legs. <sighs> Maybe throw them first next time? Come on, man. Could have mustered more oomph than that. I mean, maybe the wind caught them. They are a lot, uh, a lot lighter. Flies back and bitch slaps them in the face. Fuck <laughs> on. <laughs> the police. Oh my god. The police identified Cindy through chest X-rays. Eventually, the lower torso washed in. A surfer I mean, found me, her how? left hand. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, like, how do you what? How do you identify somebody through chest x-rays? I don't know. That's a good question. I, mean, I couldn't find any info on that. something, like, specifically different about her. Maybe. That's, that's a weird Like, she had some kind thought. of medical condition yeah. or something. Possibly. Weird. But the lower torso eventually washed in. Uh, surfer found her left hand, which offered fingerprints, but her right hand never washed up. The media at this point was in a huge panic. Because Eddie was not the only killer in Santa Cruz. <laughs> there was Herbert, the street preacher killer. We're all gonna die in the earthquake, so I'm safe for everyone by killing you. That guy, right? Oh my god. Also, her other hand probably got eaten. <laughs> Possibly. One reporter, Marilyn Baker, this huge tabloid sleuth, consistently spread rumors and offered uncorroborated info as fact. She gave daily reports, blamed all the killings on satanic rituals, and suggested that the killer was a lesbian or a transvestite. It was Dr. Frankenfurter. <laughs> Eddie was innocent. It was that damn transsexual from Transylvania. Think about it. People need a ride. They get sucked in by a nice host. And the next thing you know, boom, they're getting chopped up and put into the meatloaf. I fucking knew it. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> seriously. Marilyn would say the craziest shit. Like the murders would happen after dark on Mondays during a full moon. Oh she my god. Used, she used the hippie movement and mysticism to add fuel to the fire and the public just gobbled it up. Like Aunt Patty's casserole. No, stop it, Lori. Okay, I'm done. No, you're Sorry. not. Sorry. I don't believe you. <laughs> what the hell? Because of the killings, warnings were now being put up all over for girls to not get in a car with strangers. But Eddie had a secret weapon. 
This motherfucker is the reason why hitchhiking became illegal. <laughs> the university would institute a bus system that would assist off-campus students getting safely to campus, and Eddie had a university sticker that Mommy gave him. She did this initially so he could drive her to work, but we all know how that turned out. Yeah. So the warnings were to not get into a car that didn't have a sticker. <sighs> Therein lies the problem. With his next victims, he would use that sticker to his advantage. Of course he would. February 5th, 1973, less than a month after the murder of Cindy Shaw, was again a perfect day to kill. Hard rain was coming down, and Eddie was mad with rage. <laughs> my mother and I had a terrible argument. I told her I was going to the movies, and I immediately drove my car to the university campus because it was still early. <laughs> Luck was with him, despite the late hour, the campus was buzzing with activity because of a conference that was taking place that evening. He was afraid to stand out as he passed the guard's gate at the university entrance because his rear light and bumper were tinkered and were easily identifiable. But there were many cars and the guard was just managing the flow of vehicles. Eddie was spoiled as there were many hitchhikers in the rainy weather. Rosalind Thorpe, 23, a student of linguistics and psychology, shared an apartment in Santa Cruz with a friend. She usually went to campus by bicycle, but the bad weather had made her change her mind. I noticed that she took a look at the sticker, which allowed me to park on campus. She took me for another student and settled down next to me without any hesitation. She started talking immediately. I let her do it. She was very open, very friendly, and I wondered how to act. After a while, I decided that it was good, that she would be mine, without any doubt. Besides, I had what I call one of those little samples. Which crossed oh, my body. Jesus Christ, here we go again. Every time I had one, they would die. It never happened to me to have a zapple at another time. It's the moment when everything falls into place, when the circumstances are ideal. No one around, the guard hadn't noticed anything, no problem leaving campus, and Thorpe suspected nothing. So, so the zapples were like mm. his fucking evil spidey sense. I guess. Everything's going fine. This is the perfect opportunity to kill. Give it a better fucking name. Zapples sucks. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's something <laughs> off of My Little Pony. Oh my god. Zapple pony. Yeah, well no, it's, it's not a zapple pony. It's some sort of like electric apple they used to make amazing zapple jelly or oh, something. Jesus now Christ. I'm never going to be able to watch that again with my daughter without thinking of this bullshit. Oh. That's awful. <laughs> Fucking awful. Well, we're already making fleshlights. We can put them in the brony oh. category. No, little pony, stop it. My stop little it. pony. Stop it. <laughs> It's already fucking ruined. Don't make it worse. <laughs> You're welcome. I actually kind of enjoyed that show. <laughs> he continues. He continues by saying, and of course, she was also someone I didn't know at all. It was one of my rules to conduct from which I didn't deviate. I also decided never to hunt around Santa Cruz because I lived there, especially with my criminal record. I could be considered a potential suspect, but as my crimes went on, I became more and more ill and I took fewer and fewer precautions, both in my approach during and after, which seemed a obvious to me given the growing amount of evidence that was discovered in one form or another. As he was about to leave campus, Eddie sees this young Chinese girl hitchhiking. Alice Liu, 21, is the daughter of an aeronautical engineer from Los Angeles and is in her final year of studies at the University of California. Like Rosalind Thorpe, she lived in Santa Cruz in a studio that she shared with a friend. He stops the vehicle and she hops inside, sitting in the back seat. Okay, here we are chatting. It's actually Rosalind who is leading the conversation and that suits me. I notice Alice who sees us and gives us her most beautiful smile, thumb raise, a gesture of great beauty. She does it very naturally with a lot of grace. 
I think she must have been an experienced hitchhiker. She is superb, with everything you need, where you need it, intelligent, dressed in a conservative way, not these fashionable clothes and bright colors that we saw everywhere at the time. I admit that I was relieved that the two girls didn't know each other. We pass in front of the entrance gate. I look at the guard insistently, so he doesn't think to take a look at the back of the car. I'm sure he didn't see Alice because it was dark. She was small and wore dark clothes. A few hundred feet away, we were alone on the road. The view is superb. Below, we see Santa Cruz, which is illuminated. I ask them if they have any objection to me slowing down to observe the landscape. Rosalind nods, enthusiastic, but I feel a little reluctance coming from Alice. I have the very clear impression that I disgust her, that she's too good for a poor guy like me. The car is running. I take out my weapon, which is hidden under my leg, a black pistol. It's dark and Rosalind doesn't notice anything. We continue to chat and I point my gun. I hesitate for a second, but not more, because the girl in the back seat will see me act. I didn't stop the car voluntarily so that the warnings wouldn't light up in case we came across another car. Thorpe had a very broad forehead. I was trying to imagine what her brain looked like inside her skull. I wanted my bullet to hit her in the middle of the brain. A second before she's still moving, and the next she's dead. A noise, then silence. Absolute silence. Lou, who was sitting in the back seat, covered her face with her hands. I turned around and shot her twice through her hands. I missed her. The third time worked <laughs> right in the middle of her temple. We passed the campus gate and I could hear Lou dying in the back seat. Once out of the city, I slowed down as much as possible before turning her head to the side and shooting her at point-blank range. I know it's a big risk to take a student directly on campus, so you imagine taking two multiples at risk all the more, but I knew I could do it. Once in broad daylight, I took three hitchhikers on the University Avenue in Berkeley and almost killed them. I could have, without any problem, because of the din of the highway which had covered the shots. I drank more and more. I had to stop because I was losing all self-control. The cops knew me as a heavy drinker in the bar where we hung out, and that may be one of the reasons they didn't suspect me. In public, I was almost always drunk, wine or beer, or under the influence of various barbiturates. But I remained sober to commit my crimes. Why? When I was drunk, I could no longer act. That's why I drank constantly. I wanted to stop this madness, but it was hard to stay drunk all the time. I drank between six and eight gallons of wine a week, twice as much as my mother. <laughs> oh, oh my, my god. god! Also, I don't understand how you're not deaf. Just saying, shooting two people in the car multiple times. Yeah, so the thing was, is that when he picked them up, they were both initially on campus. He shot them on campus ground. Oh my god. And there's two different stories. So one is when he passes by the guard gate, they just like don't notice anything and wave him through. Mm -hmm. That's one story. The other story is that he gets stopped, but he tells the guard that the two girls in the car are extremely drunk and he's just trying to get them home. Okay. So we don't know which one happened. I'm going to go with the first, mostly because if there were other cars like just going through, he was trying to wave shit through because again, with the whole like blood splatter and shit like that, I doubt very fucking highly. Yeah, that he would just be waved through. That if he stopped him and noticed the girls, like, one is dead in his front seat, Alice is in the back actively dying, probably bleeding all over the place, or leaking all over the place, <laughs> as he would say. How could he not see, even if it was dark, that they were in some kind of distress, there's, like, m messed up interior of the car. Yeah. Or no one heard the gunshots if it was really that busy. No, like, seriously. the fuck? That's fucking crazy. In a path away from the road, Eddie put the two bodies in the trunk. He went to fill up at a gas station and to the toilet to clean the bloodstains that dot the plaster on his arm and his black 
jeans. Again, with the blood splatter. Back home, he parked on the street and he told his mother that he fell asleep while watching a movie at the cinema. He leaves her in front of the television and indicates that he's going to buy cigarettes. It is between 10 and 11 o'clock in the evening. There is no one on the street and he takes the opportunity to open the trunk and behead the two women with his hunting knife. That also must have taken quite a while. Although he's probably getting better at it by now. But still, he's he's not like pulled in the garage or anything. He's parked on the fucking road, Tori. Yeah. I know it's 10 or 11 at night. It's still, somebody should have fucking seen something. Yeah, but he's in full view of the entire neighborhood and just fully takes them out of the trunk. Like, doesn't do it in the trunk. He takes them out of the trunk, beheads them with the knife. Oh my god. The next morning, after his mother leaves for work, Eddie brings the two heads back to his room, cleans them in the bathroom, and takes out the bullets. Then, he takes Alice's corpse, lays her on his bed to rape her, and even thinks of washing her body to remove all traces of sperm before putting her back in the trunk where she joins Rosalind's headless body. Without really knowing why, he cuts Alice's hands. This time, he doesn't bother to dissect the corpses. It was no longer something that excites him like the first time. It has now become routine. He wants to get rid of all compromising evidence as quickly as possible. Eddie heads north on the road to San Francisco. He's thinking of depositing the corpses there to make the investigators believe that the murder is from that city. This is nuts. And the fact that his MO keeps changing, too, like... He's getting to that point where he's literally just gonna snap and all M.O. goes out the fucking window. Yeah, one of the things that he did that was brought to light, though, with every victim that he shot is he took time to remove the bullets so nobody could trace that. So, like, he was fucking smart. Yeah. When it came to this, after all the things that he studied and all the things that he's been doing, is he knew how to get away with this. Yeah. The media and the police were on edge. Macabre disappearances and discoveries were increasing. The body of Cynthia Shaw was identified on January 24th, 1973. That of Mary Gilfoyle, which was actually a victim of Herbert Mullen, so she was like falsely identified. Yeah. On February 8th, newspapers announced on their front page the disappearance of Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. By a curious coincidence, two of Eddie's work colleagues found the beheaded corpses of the two girls on February 14th. They were identified a week later. The medical examiner indicated to the investigators that the assassin or assassins probably had medical knowledge or acted according to a strange ritual because Cynthia's Achilles tendons had been cut. Eddie did it to satisfy his necrophilic desires to prevent cadaverous rigidity and to keep the body warm. I didn't know that that does that. Yeah, I don't either. I'm gonna have to look into yeah, that. That's fucking weird. That I've never really heard of that. Weird. Never he then visits a friend, takes the time to dine and go to the movies before driving up to Eden Canyon Road around 2 in the morning, where he throws the bodies. He then continues to the town of Pacifica at Devil's Slide, where he throws the heads and hands of the two young girls. Worried, he regretted not having buried the two heads and returned to the scene two weeks later at 4 in the morning. Oh no. Mm. These girls would be Eddie's last co-ed victims. Shortly after killing the girls, a police officer happened to be going through gun licenses and noticed that the record on Eddie's file from when he had killed his grandparents had been redacted with marker. Oh my god. This is why they let him have a gun. So he took the paper and held it up to the light so he could read what was crossed out. Because <laughs> it's not like how it's done today where the blackout printed copy, like you cannot read shit. No, someone just took a magic fucking marker and whoop, like blanked it out like no one was going to find out. Oh my God. <laughs> so when this cop looks through the half-assed blackout, he sees that Eddie had spent some time in the mental asylum for killing his grandparents and that he now owned his own forty-five cal. So he was like, yeah, no, that's got to get confiscated. 
Finally. But none of the cops in the department wanted to go against him because he's ginormous. So they literally drew straws. No. No joke. You idiots. Because <laughs> apparently nothing short of an elephant gun would take this fucker out if shit went south. What they're thinking. I like... mean, that's fair, but y'all are fucking as dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> and the rookie ended up drawing the shortest straw. That's Go figure. Don't do that. <laughs> so the rookie and another cop headed up in a car to Ed's neighborhood. At least he had backup. Yeah, and they had a hell of a time trying to find the exact address. His mom's house being letter address and all because what kind of ridiculous shit is that there were like three or four 609 houses in the same neighborhood like not an apartment building i can understand that but actual separate houses yeah that's weird it was 609a i've never versus seen like that. yeah i've seen apartment buildings where it's like a b c and D yeah all the same number address because i used but, to live in one but no like, but they were separate houses that's not yeah that's confusing as hell <laughs> anyway they drove around his cul-de-sac for a while before seeing a pair of legs sticking out of a car and stopped to ask where the house was they were looking for the rookie approached the car and asked where 609a was and he said quote and then I watched Ed Kemper get out and get out and get out of the car. <laughs> oh. And then very timidly added, can, can I get your gun back? <laughs> At this point, Eddie panicked a little because he was thinking, well, which one? I got the 45 and the 22 and was trying to think up an exit strategy before the rookie piped up that they needed the 45. So Eddie was like, oh, yeah, sure. Mind you, also in the car with Eddie at the time was another young blonde girl who, if the cops hadn't shown up, would have ended up dead as well. Oh my fucking god. <laughs> two months after he killed the last two girls, he started back with picking up girls just to test himself, just to see if he could pick up girls and not kill them. There was, though, two girls he picked up that looked exactly like Marianne and Anita. They wanted him to take them the wrong way to their destination, which would have taken them straight to the site of the first murders where Marianne and Anita were killed. That's weird. That's kind of creepy. Yeah. But Eddie knew the right way, and he was like, no, that's not the way. He ended up freaking them out more than any of his victims because he insisted on taking them the right way. So he did just that and dropped them off. <laughs> See, that feels almost full circle. Yeah, if he, if he was done. Like, either that, or by some freakish redemption karma, he came across their spirits. Yeah. And did what he should have done in the first place. But who knows? Anyways, after that incident, he spent the next week thinking over his ultimate plan. It was time to kill mommy. Oh, God. <laughs> and he would go through it Easter weekend. Oh, man. In an interview in 1984, Eddie recalled exactly what was going through his mind when he finalized his goal of killing his mother. He said, quote, I said, it's not going to happen to any more girls. It's got to stay between me and my mother. I said, she's got to die and I've got to die or the girls are going to die. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> what the actual fuck that saturday night he walks into his mother's room where she's totally engrossed with a book that she's reading i have no clue what it is probably something along the lines of see you next tuesday a mother's guide to gaslighting the gay out of your child oh, or some stupid oh shit God. like that like, nice anyway she slams the book down and literally goes oh my god now i'm supposed you want to stay up all night and talk a piece <laughs> of fucking work 
<laughs> I mean, Eddie did go into her room just about every night, but according to him, he did it to talk about their day and try to have normal conversations in general with her. So I don't blame his returned attitude when he just told her, nope, <laughs> and left the room and comes back four hours later with a fucking claw hammer. Yeah. Eddie's had enough of mommy's bullshit. Yep, fair enough. <laughs> In later interviews, he's in tears when he talked about this moment because he said he spent all night psyching himself up to do it. He was apparently very conflicted about killing her, but he knew he had to do it. So he takes this claw hammer and bashes her head in while she's sleeping, rolls her over, slits her throat, and later says that he was shocked at how easy it was to kill her. That she just died just as easily as the rest of them. No shit. Statements like that really make me wonder if he was thinking as a result of that. Hmm, if it was that easy, I could have avoided making all this mess and just ganked the bitch years ago. Yeah. Not that I condone murder or anything, but still, priorities, my guy. Really? After he kills her, he then decides, quote, What's good enough for my victims was good enough for my mother. So, no. yeah. No. He no. cuts off her head, has sex with her head. <gasps> Then removes the vocal cords and throws them in the garbage disposal. But they're not getting shredded up like they're supposed to. No! They keep popping up in his face like one of those fucking snake in a can gags. Stop. He says, quote, It seemed appropriate as much as she bitched and yelled and screamed at me over the years that when she was dead, she was still bitching at me. I couldn't get her up. <laughs> Imagine the fucking vocal cord popping out of the garbage disposal like, Eddie, Eddie, you piece of shit. <laughs> How could you, you stupid moron? <laughs> Just like your fucking father and fucking useless. Oh my God. He then spends the next few hours yelling and screaming at his mother's head. Then he places her head on the living room mantle and throws darts at her face. Because why not? Oh my god. <laughs> he ends up feeling sick, so he goes for a drive. On this drive, he sees a friend of his who owes him like ten bucks and goes for a ride with him in his friend's car. He's still in a stabby mood at this point, but because his friend gives him the money, he doesn't kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess that's a good thing, right? During this midnight romp, he has an epiphany. There's at least one person who's going to miss his mother and definitely notice that something's up. Her bestie, Sally Hallett. Not his sisters? Doesn't he have, like, several sisters? Yeah, he has two sisters, but they're, like, not around. He's It's only him and his mother. So Eddie calls Sally the next day and invites her over for a surprise dinner with his mother. Sally arrives later that evening and the first words out of her mouth are, let's sit down, I'm dead. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> so he sits, <laughs> so she sits down and Eddie just decks her on the back of a head with the brick. He strangles her first with his hand. Then with Aikuku's scarf that he kept with such ferocity that it broke her neck. It, he later recalled, I had broken her neck and the head was just wobbling around with the bones disconnected with her neck in the skin sack of her neck. Because, you know, nothing says Easter quite like making your very own snooty Sally bobblehead with a paisley printed ascot. Shop now at Macy's Springsdale. <laughs> Because it's me. Oh my god. And it just happens to also be April. You know the fun funniest part of this to me? The significance 
metaphysically of April is families coming together and stuff. Like, this is the month for that. This yeah, just this makes is around the Easter laugh. holiday right now, yep. so it's great! <laughs> yep. He places Sally's body in his bed and spends the night on his mother's now blood-soaked mattress. The next morning, he leaves in Sally's car and leaves a note for the cops to find that reads, Approximately 5.15am Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. No sloppy and incompetent. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. (laughs) Jesus fuck. (laughs) after leaving this note at the house he drives for three days straight popping bennies the whole time hallucinating most of the trip and eventually reaches colorado oh my god bennies for those of you that don't know is benzedrine it was the first name for the drug amphetamine which was used primarily from the 30s to the 60s for fatigue but it was popular among truckers who needed to stay awake on long trips it's not manufactured anymore today due to rising health problems shocker but Wasn't regardless also a housewife thing to fucking stay awake and be able to deal with your goddamn kids yeah <laughs> they did a lot of shit a lot of drugs women oh god yeah 60s and 70s just to stay awake and active <laughs> this motherfucker was hyped up for three days with a bad case of the zoomies <laughs> thinking oh shit the cops are on me they're gonna find all the dead bodies the blood and stuff in my house and nail my ass to the wall gotta I go mean, you left them in your house <laughs> i hope they catch you now he's thinking there's gonna be this manhunt because the cops were playing a cat and mouse game with him and thought they were watching him so they were gonna raid the house as soon as he ducked out of there i am very sad that he gave them a lot more credit and intelligence than they actually had <laughs> yeah but three days go by and there's nothing on the radio no news about the bodies He stops in Pueblo, Colorado, calls up the Santa Cruz PD, and confesses to being the co-ed killer. It takes him several calls to the department before someone takes him seriously. They're just thinking, oh, Big Ed's just drunk and he's being silly again to make us laugh. But he ended up going Pat Bateman from American Psycho and was like, no guys, really, I killed all those girls. Why won't anyone believe me? (laughs) Like, what the fuck? Eddie said that he had gone all the way to Pueblo because he was afraid that if he went straight to the PD, they would shoot first and ask questions later, and he was, quote, terrified of violence. I'm sorry. What? You, Mr. Hulk Smash, is afraid of violence. First off, someone would need, like I said earlier, a fucking elephant gun to take your ass out. And second, why the sudden aversion? You just spent the past year ganking women. I don't want to hear it. And you fucking took out your mother and best friend with fucking (laughs) bricks and claw hammers. Also, are you fucking telling me that this bitch would have gotten away with it entirely if he didn't rat himself out? Yeah, probably. They were in his house. It was his mother. Probably the best fucking thing he did there was also kill the best friend because yeah. the best friend probably would have been the person to oh, call yeah. the police and be like oh i haven't heard from her in a while can you do a wellness check and then they find her dead yeah they probably didn't fucking go to her house because she's a crazy bitch uh-huh eddie and his older sister susan swanson had actually discussed the santa cruz murders and herbert mullen in april 1973 before eddie's arrest Susan said, Guy and I discussed them one day when Mom and I went to the university to borrow movie projectors so I could show a movie I had brought from home in Montana. There was something said about Mullen firing his attorney because he had long hair, and I asked Guy if he thought Mullen had done the co-ed slings too. He said he didn't because none of them were similar in any way to how his victims had been shot, then the subject was dropped. Ugh. 
The first week I was there, Guy went to Turlock and picked up Kemper's fiance and brought her to Mom's. We went to San Francisco that weekend. I, Kemper's fiance, and Guy, and along the road, he mentioned that down there, pointing to the right, was where they had found the two girls propped up against something I don't remember the exact area. We drove along the coast highway, but this was a hilly section inland just a bit. I believe it was just south of San Jose. Another time, I commented on the girls hitchhiking, and he mentioned they weren't too bright, considering what happened, and the particular ones I mentioned were dressed really shabby. He said it was strange because some of the co-eds killed were very attractive girls, not hippie-looking at all. I think this was mentioned at the same time the conversation about Mullen was discussed on the way to the university. The subject changed. He didn't say or do anything strange or comment any more than anyone might comment because of what had been happening. One day, when we were driving from Aptos along the beach towards Santa Cruz, just sightseeing, Eddie pointed off toward the beach and mentioned that a girl's head was washed up along there. No more was said, and he brought it up. Several times while we were riding around while I was there, he would notice a girl and really stare, not just look or glance, and I teased him that he'd better get out of that habit before he gets married, or his fiance would surely get jealous. He said she's used to it or something along the line of most of these girls were dark-skinned, possibly Mexican heritage, with black hair and medium build tending toward heavy he also commented that he sure likes those big butts again i just passed it off and went to other talk so he turns himself in mind you after the arrest at several parole hearings since then he stated that if he was let out on the street he'd just kill again he pleads not guilty by reason of insanity but three of the court psychiatrists were like nope not falling for your bullshit again eddie finally (laughs) you knew exactly what you were doing Fun little tidbit, since his crimes, Eddie's diagnosis has been used as a standard for what legal insanity is, i.e. by reason of disease or defect, meaning the defendant didn't know what they were doing was wrong. Because of his case, it has been a solid thing in court Hmm. from then on. During the trial, there was one point that it ended up halted because a girl in the audience decided to make a threatening gesture to him. Can't say I blame her. The incident occurred during the playing of a tape interview of of Eddie by investigators in which Eddie had described the killing of his mother on Easter weekend. Eddie, who said he would rather not be present in the courtroom during the playing of the confession tapes, was not allowed to remain out of the courtroom. That morning when he came to court, his attorney said Eddie had been taking tranquilizers. What the fuck? Despite this, Eddie was showing obvious strain listening to his own voice on the tape, and a number of times he turned from the counsel table and scanned the spectator section. After one such look at the spectators, Eddie turned quickly back and motioned to his sheriff's guard sitting nearby. A whisper consultation took place and Eddie's lawyer, Jim Jackson, got up and immediately went to the bench and whispered something to Judge Harry F. Bauer, who promptly called for a recess. Later, Judge Bauer told reporters Eddie had said a young woman in the back row had looked at him and drawn her forefinger across her throat in a throat-cutting type gesture. (laughs) Bauer gave Eddie time to calm down and then resumed the court session. Continuing with the playing of the confession tapes, Bailiff searched for the offending girl, but she apparently left the courthouse immediately following the incident. When the court asked him what they thought was a fitting punishment for his crimes after he was charged, she said, You know what? I've been thinking about this moment from childhood. I ought to be tortured to death. (laughs) I mean, fitting for the crimes, I guess. However, why let him get his rocks off one last time? personally i think denial is one of the worst punishments when it comes to kinks and i say this because eddie's always been kind of a masochist i mean seeing as as a child he was sitting there in the uh, electric chair and fucking i think he always knew he'd probably be put to death but it would be more fitting to not let him have that 
That yeah, would be torture for exactly. him. Exactly. Going off of this, the death penalty at the time was suspended nationwide, so he was sentenced to life in Folsom Prison. Yeah. <laughs> that one for all my fellow man and black fans. But the concert happened before Eddie was there. Bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Now, remember when I mentioned the other killers, John Frazier and Herbert Mullen? Well, Eddie got to meet Mullen in prison. Oh, stop. Eddie said that he was just a cold-blooded killer through and through, who just killed everyone he saw for no apparent reason. He would actually make fun of Herbert by calling him Herbie. Because Herbert hated it. And it made Eddie giggle. Oh, my God. He called him Herbie because he had a high-pitched voice. Kind of like Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, you know? Oh, my God. The one that talked like this, like to drink Chunky Bunny smoothies. Oh. Yeah, that asshole. <laughs> Fuck, I remember that. <laughs> Eddie said, I wouldn't blame Mullen. I was in a jail cell right next to him for months, and I was in prison up in the hole there in the lockup unit for going on three years with him. About two and a half years at one point. I got him a job in the kitchen. I was already on kitchen crew and the sergeant pulled me aside and asked me to talk to the guys about him coming on the crew because he alienated a lot of the guys and they were afraid there'd be violence. So I talked to them and there was no problem. So they thought they brought him out into the crew. He worked a few months and he goes on the main line. I was still in the hole saying, geez, what happened here? (laughs) You know... I knew Herbie. I don't call him Herbert Mullen. And of course, I don't call myself Edmund Emil Kemper III either. I never heard that in my life until I was locked up for murder, right? But little Herbie was when I met him in the Redwood City Jail, okay? Our first meeting was I bumped out of the priority cell where they could look from the office and see through the steel door, the glass in the door, and see him physically. Or they could watch the monitor and watch him. He got bumped next door. There was a shower in the priority cell. You never had to leave the cell for him to shower from the other cell. He had to go out in the main area. They had to lock everybody in one of the, I guess you call them, tanks. They moved 15 guys, 30 guys, out of the tank into the activity area. They'd walk him around into their tank. He'd shower. He'd come back out and all the way over there, all the way back there. They're catcalling him. They're calling him names. They're yelling because he caused them great interruption in their day, right? He resented that. He got bumped out of the priority cell into a non-shower cell. I got the shower cell, right? (laughs) So he wasn't too friendly at first. I'd say, excuse me, Mr. Mullen. I'd say, do you have a bar of soap? There's no soap over here. He took it all with him. He had no need for it, but he took it with him. He'd say, yes. And I'd say, well, can I use a bar of it? He said, no. I'd say, oh, I got one of these little shits here. And what it is, that's, he's a little wimpy guy that hates big guys because he's always feels intimidated by them, right? And that's how we started out. So I started thinking about that and I went back to my old relationships and therapy and group therapy and Atascadero and the youth authority and stuff. And I'm saying, okay, well, we can deal with this. So I started, I said, well, I have to be kind to him. So I found out something he liked. He loved planter's peanuts, little bag of peanuts, shelled peanuts. So I bought 20, 30 bags of them. I didn't care for them myself. I offered him some one day. We were both on camera 24 hours a day. So I said, Herbie, would you like some peanuts? And he'd say, yeah. And I'd say, oh, I got him right down to the inner core there. Yeah, this little childhood thing comes out and says, oh, here. And he was fascinated by this thought of, gee, he's just giving me some peanuts and I do anything for them. I don't know him. I'm not being nice to him. Why would he be giving me some peanuts? So he comes over to the bars. We can't even see each other. And I reach out with these peanuts around the side and I see his little hand come out. And I thought of it almost like as a little monkey paw. (laughs) 
It seemed what like so innocent. This little hand comes out, starts to reach for the peanuts, and then he hesitated. He pulls back, and I thought, oh geez, he's defensive. He's thinking I'm gonna grab his hand and rip his arm off or something. I'm this great big guy, right? So without saying anything, I just reached around and I laid them on the bars and then pulled my hand away. He took them and enjoyed them, and all of that I'd say later, I'd say, gee, uh, Herbie, did you eat all those peanuts? He'd say, oh no, I still got some left. I'd say, well, I got plenty more. Go ahead and enjoy them. So what I did, I started giving him bags of peanuts, and he had this horrible habit. These guys there are in the back tank, and he and I are in these cells facing them through three bars. These sets of bars. I can't see him, and he can't see me. I don't know where on the set of bars he is. The set of bars stretches out arms wide, like it's nine feet and eight or nine feet high. When he would go to acting up, he'd sit there hours writing and writing at his little desk and other guys were ignoring him. So that night they were watching Saturday Night Live, you know, with all this rock music playing and stuff. And they're enjoying it. He'd get up and he'd make this real loud speech about how bad television is for you and why you shouldn't watch it. All the things it'll do to you. And they're having fits. They're trying to throw things at him and they can't get at him. They're raging. They're mad because he's destroying the one thing they really enjoy. And he's just having a ball doing this. <laughs> He'll sit there for hours a day writing this two-hour speech exactly as long as it takes to watch the show. Oh my god. So he'd also sit over there and sing these horrible songs. He couldn't sing a lick at all. He's singing these horrible songs. And at one time I was in the car coming back to Redwood City and the cop got so upset at this singing he's doing doing at the back of the station wagon he turns around with his can of mace and says i had it get out of the way kemper i'm saying hey wait a minute you're gonna get me with that stuff they're just trying to mace the guy in the back of the car because he won't shut up he's trying <laughs> to get them to shut up and the guy just ignores him he had his way of really getting on people's nerves so he pulled this little stunts these horrible songs and the speeches and things i'd say herbie why do you do stuff like that he says i have a right to do what i want to do and then, yeah, okay, right. <laughs> so I started this. They called us real basic behavior modification therapy, okay? I had a little bit of psychology study. I worked in the psych testing area in Tascadero. I knew some of these things. So I set up a very basic and very essential, just bare minimum behavior mod experiment. Behavior modification, right? You reward them when they're good. You punish them when they're bad. And if they're absolutely accurate and when you do these things, quick punishment when they do bad and quick reward when they do good, supposedly this is supposed to attack you at a subliminal level, a subconscious level, and you don't have a lot of control over your reactions. That would improve your behavior, essentially, and then have these great elaborate experiments, like in Youth Authority, when I would get through where they were trying these things. So what I did was... When he was bad, I'd get a cup full of water in a styrofoam cup, and I'd reach around and throw it on him. <laughs> it's embarrassing, and it also gets his papers wet, and you know, so we got his cat and mouse game. When he was good, I'd give him peanuts, and I'd try to gas him when he was bad. It's called gassing. You know, throw this water on him, and he'd duck all over the house, and I couldn't figure out where he was at, so I kept missing him. So what I did is, I waited one day till I knew he was asleep, or I suspected he was. I called one of the guys over to the pars and placed him in the back, the tank, and I went like this. Kemper pretends at this point he's sleeping with his folded hands beneath his face for a pillow. I says, he holds out his hands for a mime gesture to ask, what is he doing? He reads it, and he says, yes. I says, shh. I call him over to the bars and I said, hey, I want to work something out where I can get Herbie with these cups of water and he can't figure out what I'm doing. I said, I just thought of a way. He says, what's that? And I said, I want you to set up a grid on the bars where you're at, put a little piece of string or a little piece of plastic 
or a little something he won't notice. Count over how many bars there are in a cell, on his cell front, and from the wall, go over that far on your set and set up boundaries. Then when I give you a signal, that'll be a hand signal, a very casual walkover, don't look at me, just casually walk over and drape yourself over the bars where he's at so I'll know. If he's back away from the bars, go back that far and position yourself so it's a grid. It's a targeting grid. So he would do this, and Herbie would hear me turn the water on, or maybe I'd have some already set up, and I would reach through the bars, and I blasted him. I got him every time. <laughs> With the help of the <laughs> Yeah. God. He couldn't figure out how all of a sudden it got so accurate. It was without fail. I'd get him with the water. Wham! You know, it's embarrassing, and everybody's laughing back there, and good shot, Ed, and all that stuff. And then I'd ask him if he'd do something, or hey, we can do this, or whatever, you know, when he'd participate in something with me, I'd give him peanuts. When he's bad, he gets blasted with water. This went on for two or three weeks. <laughs> he actually got away from the bad behavior when he'd say, hey, I want to sing. Says, well, hey guys in the back, do you mind if he sings? Oh, we don't want to hear that shit, man. I said, hey, do you want to hear it now, or do you want to hear it tonight when you're watching the show? Yeah, okay. So, go ahead, Herbie, sing. <laughs> wow. Okay, so he's kind of like a mediator, too, besides a fucking behavioral therapist for this stupid douchebag. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> He'd sing for 30 to 40 seconds, and I'd get bored and say, gee, I don't want to do this anymore, you know, because the fun was gone out of it. But the point is, I got a handle on his behavior, and the cops are watching this. The deputies are on camera watching me. I mean, they're on monitors watching my every move I'm making, right? And they're fascinated. They're watching this thing go back and forth with me and Herbie. They're not involving themselves. They're just watching it. And after a while, one of them come in and said, Herbie is completely cooperative now. He's not messing around. Because I've been, as we're talking these little frictions out between he and I, I'm showing him some insights into why people don't like him and showing some insights into why his behavior is causing in them. And he had realized by that point that it was just his reacting to how people are reacting to him. It was just self-perpetuating thing, and that was the only way he could get out his negative feelings. I said, well, why don't you pose on the positive and focus on the positive instead of the negative will go away? I don't think anybody ever did that with him before because he responded real well to it. And Later, when we were up in the hole together, we weren't even supposed to be together. They didn't want us together, but we were up in the hole together. I was the only guy he could talk to. <sighs> well, yeah, if you're the only one that's, like, treating him like that and just, like, completely reshaping his fucking brain i bet you that was the most entertainment the guards had more than Honestly, likely that's probably why they weren't intervening they're like huh yeah let's see what fucking happens here <laughs> why is it working yeah they had this love-hate relationship like eddie and herbie this was mostly due to the fact that eddie said it quote stuck in his craw that he got eight out of eight counts of first degree murder and herbie only got two out of 13 counts of first degree <laughs> well he followed that by saying i guess it's kind of hilarious my sitting here so self-righteously talking like that after what i've done you think yeah no <laughs> shit mister my ego is the size of my five foot wide ass that's not just a joke, mind you. His ass was legit five feet across. What the fuck? I'm only three inches taller than the flab span of this gargantuan. Wow. I could use it as a fucking beanbag. Not that I want to, but still. <laughs> Former FBI agent John Douglas spoke about his interviews with Eddie while he was locked up. The agent was only 25 at the time of the interview. He commented saying that from hearing Eddie's side of things, in his opinion, quote, his mother broke him. She neutered him psychologically through years of psychological abuse. He was very intelligent. He had an IQ of 145 and liked to talk. I wanted him to think this was not an interview or an interrogation. It was a conversation, Douglas recalled. 
He asked to see my credentials, asked me about my job. He told me he wanted to be a law enforcement officer. During the interview, Douglas said he did things he would not usually do in later cases. I brought a tape recorder and took notes, which was the wrong move. Kemper did not like that. People in that place, Vacaville, are generally very paranoid, and criminals in general do not want to be perceived as a snitch, especially when incarcerated. Yeah, yeah, no shit. Eddie was a hulking man and had to duck under a six-foot-five doorway when entering the room. Jesus Christ, can you imagine that image coming at you? According to Douglas, he dwarfed Douglas, who was 6'2". Despite his size, Douglas said Eddie was not an intimidating figure, adding he was not a bully, he was bullied upon. He would talk to me at great lengths about the abuse he suffered as a child by his mom. He said she would tell him, you're a bum, you're nothing, you're just like your father. His mother was a professor at the University of Santa Cruz, and Kemper would hang around the campus, sometimes trying to pick up the girls and get a date, he told me during our interview. His mom would tell him, those women are too good for you. Stop trying. You can never have a woman like that. He told me that. He thought, yes, mom, I can have them by killing them. <laughs> like, because then they're mine. Yeah, he would also rehearse killing them and killing his mother. He would stand by the foot of her bed as she slept with the claw hammer, fantasizing about killing her, but not yet going through with it. This is what I mean. Like, he even thought from when he was a fucking kid that he wanted to take her out with a hammer. So this has been, like, years going. Talk about premeditated. Yeah, when I asked what he was thinking while standing over his sleeping mother, he told me I just wanted to smash her. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> freezing <laughs> he then started killing girls his mother said he could never have what's more he would bury their severed heads outside her bedroom window and position them so that way were angled so they would be staring up towards her since she would tell him that she enjoyed people looking up at her what he seemed as a sign of respect <laughs> I'm sorry I don't think that was a sign of respect that was you want people to look up to you so much ma now you got a bunch of dead bitches looking up to you. <laughs> yeah. During the meeting, Douglas showed Eddie a false sense of empathy to better understand his behavior and his motives behind the killings. A hard part of the interview, the agent recalled, was when we asked him about his crimes. He told us about fantasies of killing, killing his mother. All his crimes began with fantasy. Most people don't carry through with their fantasies, but Kemper began his murders with fantasy and then carried them out. He told us that the murders helped him feel empowered and in control. Douglas then admitted he was in awe of the killer at times, who possessed a surprising intelligence. His recall was amazing. The details, the weather, the day of each crime, what the victim was wearing. Wow. Yeah. After the meeting, Douglas realized in order to be successful in these kinds of meetings, he needed to know everything about the case beforehand and establish a rapport with these killers. During his time with the Behavioral Science Unit and after his interview with Eddie, Douglas says he came up with the idea to teach officers criminal psychology by conducting interviews with killers and seeing if there were any patterns that emerged between them. He would employ strategies that some labeled reverse psychology, but Douglas attested that it's better described as reverse engineering. We would first build a profile of serial offenders, killers who killed three or more people on different occasions, interview them, and define different sets of interrogation techniques for particular offenders, sometimes trying to provoke them. Provocative techniques. Yeah. These killers were not born this way. They were made this way. Douglas went on to describe triggering points that led people like Kemper to kill. Noting that specific events triggered him, he was rejected by his mother, traveled to his father while he was in Montana, and was rejected by him. At this point, he planned to kill his paternal grandparents as a form of revenge against his parents. When Douglas questioned him as why he killed his grandparents, his first step into his descent into madness, he told the agent, I wanted to see what it felt like. I feel like that one didn't have much to do with uh, revenge. I think it was really just a, huh, 
They're old. They can't fight back. I can probably take this bitch out. Probably. Eddie also detailed Douglas' murderous urges he felt as a child, which he said he would frequently release on animals, something Douglas would later discern to be a telltale sign of a serial killer in his groundbreaking profile. He would kill cats, he told me. He would behead them and bury them alive. He buried his sister's pet cat while it was alive, dug it up once it was dead, and cuts his head off and puts it on a post in his room. He would later dig up and have sex with his victim's bodies. However, Eddie still did his best to win over Douglas, who said he was wary of the killer's tricks, and he said he actually learned from them. He tried to manipulate me during our interview. He would try to be friendly and earn my trust and help me along with the interview. I realized you cannot rehabilitate someone like that, Douglas discerned, referring to Eddie, high intelligence, manipulative. The ex-agent then went on to explain how Eddie had avoided police attention over the course of his string of grisly crimes. Again, he wouldn't have been caught if he didn't fucking throw himself under the bus. Yeah, they wouldn't they were dumb. fucking dumb. They were so dumb. Kemper was difficult to catch because he would desecrate the bodies, so forensic scientists at the time did not have much to go on. He would also put various body parts in different locations. During the April meeting in 1973, Douglas also discussed the murder of Kemper's mother and her friend earlier that year a crime that Kemper ended up turning himself in for. When Kemper killed his mother, his final murder, he thought there would be a manhunt, he told me. Douglas went on to say that Kemper had served a sort of case study for the young agent, who would go on to pioneer how investigators treated cases surrounding serial killers. Douglas said he took advantage of Eddie's well-spoken nature and willingness to speak freely about his sordid crimes. He was matter-of-fact about everything. I would tell him that I wanted specifics during the interview, and he would give them to me. He told me how he collected newspapers and news clippings covering his crimes. Douglas crawled before adding that the case served as a precursor to techniques I would later use and teach to profile these killers. I learned from Kemper, the former agent who retired from the Bureau in 1995 after forever changing how the organization approached cases, discussed how the Kemper case was what sparked this important advancement, what they called the McDonald Triad. The three signals that indicate a serial killer, bedwetting, fire setting, and animal cruelty, was only completed from things we learned from Eddie. Hmm. Before Kemper, animal cruelty was not a sign specified by profilers and investigators on forms. There was only bedwetting, fire setting, and a section marked other. This changed after Kemper. After his meeting with the co-ed killer, Douglas would transfer to the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit in 1977 and went on to interview and profile the likes of Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Dennis Lynn Rader, the BTK killer. After profiling dozens of notorious serial killers, the accomplished agent authored a 57-page questionnaire used by the agents to profile serial killers. At the time of criminal profiling's conception, Douglas said he was doubted and even criticized by his own colleagues until both police and the FBI realized that he had developed a useful tool for the capture of criminals, especially serial killers. Eddie is, by his own rights, a man of superior intellect and no small achievements. He boasts of once having been America's youngest fully-fledged civic booster, a 20-year-old Christian living what he calls a Jesus-first life. Oh my fucking God, yeah. shut the hell up. By that distinction is just an ironic footnote in Eddie's vitae. He is a legend far more weighty reasons, and he implores his visitors to please, just please, get the story right. I did not butcher people, Eddie started, now 41 years old, insists with petty certitude of grammarian arguing over nuance. Decapitation is not butchering. The papers and the magazines had me butchering my victims, but I only dismember two bodies. They were all decapitated, all but my mother's friend. Why? Why didn't I just pop some teeth out or crunch some bones up? I was starting to branch out in my thoughts on how to do things to get away with it. The psychological trip was, 
The person is the head. For some reason, someone looks entirely different with no head. I noticed that. I'm on an honesty thing that lasts five or six years, except when people get into my car. I didn't tell them I was going to kill them. I couldn't quite handle that. Are you interested in what I was taking the heads off with? It wasn't a saw, not even a hacksaw, a buck knife. I got high on the complication of the thing, the meticulous way I ironed out potential problems before they even started. Hat pins, mace. The more weapons the girls had, the safer they felt. The more chances they'd take, the easier it was for me. Unless it's a policewoman with a gun in her hand aimed at me, I got her exactly where I wanted her. The first two victims, Pesky and Lachessa, were convinced the FBI and the CIA and Interpol were going to come looking for them two hours after they were missing. Both of them had money. Ritzy family's real important. Boy, if I don't call daddy, we'll be missed. <laughs> oh my god. Eddie is a giant of a man at six foot nine, three hundred two pounds, and as the words spew out, his voice betrays macabre enthusiasm while an intermittent giggle gives away his self-consciousness. These awful stories, over a span of maybe half a dozen years, Eddie killed ten people, his grandparents, his mother, her best friend, and six hitchhiking students. He chopped their heads and hands off, eight parts of them, and, in his nagging mother's case, propped up her severed head on the kitchen table and ranted and raved at it, ripped out the larynx and grinded it up in the waste disposal. Mom didn't give a fuck, she was just using her own little comforts. Nice guy. <laughs> fucking terrifying. Eddie has one of the largest interviewed archives of any serial killers. Due to his work with the FBI, he has a total of five to six hours of recorded interview time. One of those interviews actually took place only hours after his conviction. Huh. Eddie himself lived a very interior life. He said that he just wanted to talk to people and have them understand him. Mm -hmm. Like A few fun facts to add in as we come to a close on this episode. A few years ago, the Santa Cruz Ghost Hunters featured a story in one of their videos where a young woman named Sarah interviewed her grandmother who turned out to be the young woman who made this throat slashing gesture toward eddie during the trial in 1973 Lol. yeah this is what she said the trial that you're asking me about sarah was in 1973 and every morning alice lou would wait on my husband and i with coffee naturally we knew her from the coffee shop and when she was murdered by edmund kemper i wanted to i well i wanted to be there listen to the testimony and it was just real graphic so i don't know whether i should tell you about that Edmund Kemper got Alice Lou in his car when she was on her way to campus or coming back. He had his car rigged up in such a way that once you got in the passenger side, the handle would never allow you to get out. She could never get out. Picture this, lovely little oriental girl, 19, working hard in a little coffee shop when he was describing all these things about Alice Lou. There was a break in the proceedings and when he comes in with his chains and he's walking in, his eyes focused on me. And I told you I was so emotional with that horrible testimony I said to him. And he focused on me and I said, I would love to cut your throat. And he went, oh, and the bailiff saying, what is it? What is it? And I had a dress with polka dots on it. And the bailiff come over and said, you got to sit on the other side of the courtroom. You've upset Mr. Kemper. Good. Yeah. <laughs> When in Vacaville, that he was moved later on, Eddie participated in reading audiobooks for the blind. Yeah. He spent more than 5,000 hours in the booth in front of the microphone for 10 years. He, was, he has more than 4 million feet of tape and several hundred books to his credit. Included in his work is a children's book called The Trumpet and the Swan, the fourth book of the Dune series, and a novelization of the Star Wars trilogy. 
He was one of the most famous voiceover people in California at the time. He is also said to have written several short stories, though I was unable to find them, no matter how far down the rabbit hole I went. If any of you guys do happen upon them, please, please, please send me a link because I would love to read them. There is a sample of his work that I will leave a link in the show notes, the only available audio recording of him reading any of the books. It's an excerpt of him reading the book Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews, which is a fucked up book. And it's on the Vacaville Volunteers website. I have listened to it myself. It's nothing to write home about, but if you wanted to write to him to let him know how you felt about his recordings, you could. Yeah, he's alive. His mailing address is available online, but at the moment he's 74 and suffering from dementia <laughs> in the California medical facility until he croaks. And I've been told he is unable to write back to anyone anymore, so if you want to be pen pals, more power to you. But the hamster's dead at this point, so there's no cognitive function in him anymore. Needless to say, Eddie no longer works for the volunteer program because as of 2015, he suffered a stroke and it was unable to work for them anymore. For his audiobooks, Eddie had been well regarded and he earned some more recognitions for his work. He told the LA Times, I can't begin to tell you what this means to me. To be able to do something instructive for someone else, to be appreciated by so many people, the good feeling it gives me after what I've done. No, you just yeah. are happy they gave you an outlet so you could just keep talking. Personally, I think he said this as a point to inflate his ego, him being a sociopath. I don't believe this was a sign of remorse or redemption. No. And I refuse to end the episode on such a light to make him look like a positive person. Instead, I'll give Big Eddie one last word. The quote that went down in serial killer history as one of the most infamous. That, to me, sums up who he truly was as a person, or in truth, a monster. When I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part wants to be real nice and sweet, and the other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time for more ghastly ghouls and psycho serial killers. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on Anchor and click the links in the show notes to check out some of the interviews and audio files mentioned in the episode and to become part of our Facebook group where we post discussions and links to our newest episode. Later!